0: So Bertrand Russell, you might know that name. Okay, good, you do. I see some nods. The great British philosopher and humanist of the 20th century was fascinated with the human mind. For Russell, our ability to have notions and ideas and processes seared within our mind, our ability to pay attention in such a way that we not only remember what we take in, but that we also replicate it and pass it on to future generations. For Russell, this was what set humans apart from everything else under the sun. For Russell, our minds were what made us gods, which is why he despised religion. For Russell, religion was just a drug. Religion was just that superstitious dribble that dulled our mind and our memory and our attention and kept us trapped in the past. Church bells would ring, and sure enough, religious folk would gather, drooling out their rote prayers and their responsive readings. And for Russell, and even perhaps many of you, (laughs) it's the repetition of things that makes us less interesting. Or less than we could be, it might seem. You have to understand that anybody who has a heightened understanding of the human mind and attention, as Russell did, is rightly suspicious of any group of people like us who have been reading the same book for the same 2,000 years. Every week we get together and we do the exact same thing. Of course, no Beatles. (laughs) But if you were to evaluate the structure of our liturgy today, it's all there, right? It's the same. Every week we get together and we read that same book, just like Christians around the world throughout time. A person dressed like me gets up here and says, the Lord be with you. And you respond, like you're just drooling it out. The word of God for us, the people of God. You've got the cues. These are the things that tie us together and these are the things that would drive Russell crazy. You see, he's suspicious of anyone who can't seem to pay attention, who can't seem to remember from one week to the next what's going on and have to get together every Sunday to do it all over again, right? Here at Kingstown... We've been working our way through a sermon series entitled Hashtag Goals, seeking to dive into the goals of the Christian life at Kingstown. Thanks, Natasha, for that sermon series title. In other words, seeking to discover what is supposed to come out of getting together every week and doing this same thing over and over and over again. What are the goals, the practical signs of our relationship with God? Week one, we talked about the goal of presence, showing up because We need a word from, not because we need a word from God or because we need to feel better about ourselves, but because we're actors in this grand drama for this audience of one who is God. Week two, we talked about the goal of devoting our treasures to God, not because God needs our money, but because our money needs God. Week three, Dennis led us in the goal of our energy, everything we are, our time and our calendars and our passions, our words and actions until we're no longer imposters, until we move into the, into the world as the way our, that divine spark in us would reflect. Presence, treasures, energy, and today we wrap up this series on the goals of the Christian life with our prayers. And though Bertrand Russell might have been in awe of the human mind and attention span, preachers know differently. <laughs> I've got a pretty good view from up here of you all, You people. I've got a pretty good view. I know exactly which one of you fall asleep while I'm preaching. I see when you're dozing. I do. When you've checked out, and I know when a pastor says that she's going to be preaching on prayer, you have already begun writing your Thanksgiving grocery list in your head. Right? And I get it. I get it because I don't think I have ever heard a good sermon on prayer. Ever from anyone, ever. And I tell you the truth, this one might go down in history as just as bad as the others. We'll see. The problem with preaching on prayer is that it just seems a bit obvious. Of course the goal of the Christian life is prayer. We know that there are three right answers when children come to sit on this rug. Jesus, the Bible, and prayer, right? (laughs) The problem with sermons on prayer is that it just seems too on the nose. It becomes too unattainable and indiscernible for folks like you and too broad and cumbersome for folks like me. And so despite Russell's faith in the human mind, our minds just check out. But I'm going to attempt this anyways. To set the stage, I invite you to imagine that this morning's sermon were an infomercial. An infomercial, by the way, of p 90 x Because this morning, my goal is to equip you to have a relationship with God like you never have before, all from the comfort of your home. (laughs) And I get it. This is a switch from my usual mode of operation. I just told you how important it was two weeks ago that you show up here. And then I sent you letters telling you how crucial it is that you give to this church. And Dennis told you you've got to go all in and... Usually you could say I'm much more along the lines of like an L.A. fitness sales rep trying to get you to show up and pay your dues and get involved and get your relationship with God in shape. But this morning sermon is not about coming to church more. It's not about giving your money. It's not about you volunteering more, you devoting every ounce of your energy to the mission of the church, because frankly, if we build this church and you build your faith on your presence and your treasures and your energy, but not your prayers. We will all be sleepwalking imposters, slowly and quietly, but I guarantee surely, stamping out the light that leads to life. Instead, this morning, I want to prove Bertrand Russell wrong. I want to prove that participating in a daily, repetitive, 2,000-year-old prayer is not a degradation of cognitive ability. It's not a sign of intoxication or imprisonment of the human mind, but rather a full and awe-inspiring awareness of what God is up to. I want to explore the kind of prayer that proves Russell wrong so that we might ignite and deepen our understanding and relationship with God. This might not be the kind of prayer you're thinking of, though. It might not be the kind of prayer you know of this morning. I may be redefining prayer for you, and that's good. When you're engaged in the kind of prayer I'm talking about, your head is not bowed. Your eyes are not closed. In fact, your head's up and your eyes are wide open. When you engage in the kind of prayer I'm talking about, you find yourself praying more deeply in a traffic jam or in a cubicle or standing over supper wondering how in the world you're going to bear another Thanksgiving with your mom or wondering how in the world you're going to get through the first one without her. When you engage in this kind of prayer that I'm talking about, you find yourself praying more deeply when you forget to pray. When you forget that on your knees, me and my family and my life ritual, when you forget because it's just all you can do to crawl into bed without screaming that night. When you engage in this kind of prayer, you find yourself praying more deeply when you finally admit to yourself that you don't know how to pray, that you don't even know if prayer works. All of Scripture is this lesson in this kind of prayer. The witness of scripture is that humans fundamentally crave religion. Russell's kind of right. We crave a way to move in the world. We crave a way to practice what we believe. And so from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, there's been this tendency to make prayer private religious practice that is individually ours, something we can piously control, a narrative of what we want and how we feel and where we live— All throughout scripture, we feel a need in our heart. We think we really should be praying. And and so we build rooms and walls and temples and golden calves anywhere to get God on God's own, trying to conjure up and capture God in our little corner of creation so that we can become better people than we've ever been before, those better versions of ourselves that we could never quite attain, until that becomes all that we are. And God says, enough! Enough! All of scripture is the story of humanity trying to make our relationship with God this sort of religious experiment and private, pious practice when the whole story is God trying to revolutionize our connection so that it's not a religious practice, but a way of being. Prayer for the Christian is not a private, personal practice of what we believe. Prayer is a posture of remembering And seeing, remembering and seeing God, prayer is the art of paying attention to the movements of God in the world. The whole story, especially when you get to the book of Acts, is the story of God trying to get our attention. And finally, we reciprocating our attention. In our text this morning, Paul teaches us what it looks like to pray what it really looks like to pray, and we see a pattern emerge for Paul. Paul teaches us this sort of threefold approach, three things that, that tell you what it means to pay attention to God. It's the Sabbath day, and Paul trying to do his religious duty. It's time to go make his prayers to God, and he gets up, and he gets dressed, and immediately obstacles start meeting him along the way. First, what is he going to pray it doesn't tell us, but we know what Paul prayed. Paul would have prayed what any other good Jewish convert would have prayed. Paul would have prayed the Torah and the Psalms and his newfound apostles' teachings. Do you know how many times he would have prayed these words Do you know how sick and tired he was of that daggone story of deliverance from Egypt? And oh yeah, I know, Passover, yes. How many cups of wine do I need to drink? Passover and Purim and going to the temple every day and making these same prayers before God over and over and over again. And it's enough to make you want to skip out on daily prayer altogether. It's enough to make you want to skip daily prayer. There's nothing new and interesting about this at all. Paul had been traveling all day, and he's tired, and the last thing he wants to do is pray the same old words he's been praying all along. It's enough to make you want to, this time, just close your eyes and forget all that stuff in the past and just pray what you feel. Except you can't. Because the first lesson in the posture of Christian prayer is paying attention to what God has done. With eyes wide open reading and recounting the movements of God throughout history. You see, Bertrand Russell may have been suspicious of anyone who got stuck in the past, but we as the church should be suspicious when people forget the past. The first lesson of paying attention is rooting our prayers first and foremost in how God has acted before we ever found our place on this, this earth, because <laughs> it's not about us. And any prayers divorced from the way of God, well, they're just, the way of God before, they're just dangerous. They're dangerous. We, the church, have been complicit in in the rush of the Crusades, the hustle of slavery, the support of Nazi Germany, the fast talk of apartheid, all because we have closed our eyes and gone to our closets to pray. The goal of prayer, don't get me wrong, is not nostalgically stuck in the past, there, there is not a single moment in human history I want to go back to, and I believe that the best days of the church are ahead of us, but prayers divorced from God's preceding movements and Scripture are in danger of missing how God is moving today. Next, Paul, he's looking for a place to pray. This is Paul's second obstacle. where, Where will I pray? He just begins wandering, searching the whole city of Philippi to find a suitable place. My Mondays are a lot like this. I block them off. I carve them out as study days. Time for intentional prayer and preparation for sermons. And like Paul, the obstacles are always around where. Where do you go to connect with God? I try to stay home, but at home, there are just all these distractions, all these things left undone, right? All these things, my to-do list piling up, and I usually can't stay at home, and so sometimes I go to another church. I find a classroom over at Aldersgate, hoping for some quiet, but I show up, and there's stuff happening, and I didn't expect it, and they get in my way, and it's not reliable, and sometimes I'll, I'll go to the park, and uh, not this time of year, but I did. I went to the park. They're not really built for comfort, and you sit on a picnic bench for about a half an hour, and everything from the waist down falls asleep. And so Paul searches all of Philippi, but the coffee shops are packed, and the synagogues have too many activities going on, and so finally he goes outside the city, down to the river, and he finds this tranquil place where he thinks he can engage in prayer there. At the river, like the ocean or the mountain, right? God's presence is unavoidable there. All throughout scripture, we get stories of people wandering and looking for a place to connect with the one who made them. Remember the story of Moses and the burning bush? Moses walking along and he sees this bush burning and it becomes, out of nowhere, a place to pray. Not because the bush is on fire, but because when Moses stops and turns stops, turns, and pays attention, every bush in all of creation then becomes a flame for whoever will stop, turn, and pay attention. Jesus's most effective sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, he preached lots of sermons, but this one, his best one, he stood up and told people to look around you, to pay attention. If you want to see God, he said, consider the lilies of the field. This is Paul's second lesson in the posture of prayer that remembering and seeing requires that we pay attention to the wonder of just where we are. We want to be able to be aware of God sitting and staring at our dashboards or surrounded by the soft blue of the cubicle. (laughs) To connect with God who is everywhere is simply paying attention to God who can be anywhere. I wonder if you pay attention to the wonder of where God has planted you now. Or are you constantly looking for that next place? That next perfect, sacred life moment or space, a set-apart time, a private sanctuary where you can shut your eyes finally and tune out the world. Finally, Paul, with his Torah and Psalms, aware of what God has done and giving in to the fact that the river is as good a place as any to pray to God, Paul tries to tune out the voices around him so that he can concentrate on God and really think and explore what it means to be connected. And lo and behold, this chick Lydia shows up. And not just Lydia, she comes with all these friends. (laughs) And they just start talking and interrupting Paul's prayer life. And thus enters obstacle three. You come to church, or you go to try to find solitude in the corner of a coffee shop. You just want to do your religious duty. You just want to connect to God. And wouldn't you know that kid behind you just keeps running around and climbing on cafeteria tables. Completely hypothetical, of course. (laughs) And this woman in the corner of the the coffee shop keeps chronically coughing. And you just can't unhear it. And you're thinking, good God, like, like, why does she need to even come out with that cough? And how can you pray with all these people around you? It happens to me every Monday as well. Once I finally do settle into some place, Lydia and all her friends and many different faces, um, they come barreling into my prayer life. People will make prayer as a religious practice in your life impossible. And this here lies Paul's third lesson in the posture, not the practice of prayer. That remembering and seeing means paying attention to people around you and to how God through these people are tuning you to what is up ahead for them and for you. You see, with Paul's prayer blinders on, there is no way Paul could anticipate how utterly crucial this moment with Lydia is. There's no way Paul could have anticipated just how much Paul's encounter with this woman would change the face of the church forever. Paul's down there in his place of prayer, and Lydia comes up and just starts talking, and suddenly the spirit starts doing a new thing. Talk to her, listen to her, and Lydia becomes the means through which Paul hears the word of God. Lydia, eventually baptized, eventually joins God's movement in the early church, and wouldn't you know becomes the most profound example in scripture we have of me being able to be up here doing what I'm doing. Lydia becomes the first female pastor in the Bible, eventually leading the church in Philippi, all because some chick showed up on the riverbank, interrupting my prayer life. And so while you're paying attention to what God has done in the past and paying attention to how God is moving Where you are now, and paying attention as well to the people around you, friends, through this, an active and vibrant and vivified relationship with God doesn't need a special place. It it doesn't need eyes closed, quiet spirit, soul shut out from the world. It doesn't take a set apart time or isolation. It's it's just a posture of paying attention. As Christians, we have a word for this. It's something that we embody every single week when we come to this table. It's probably a word you don't know. It's a seminary word. Um, But I'm going to give it to you anyways. When I come up here, do you notice me take a posture of this? (laughs) Most of the time... I look at you while I'm leading this prayer. I don't invite you to close your eyes and shut this out. I invite your eyes to be dead on this meal. And my hands are out like this, not like this. This posture here is a Gnostic posture, meaning that if I just go down into myself, into my heart, into my body, I will find the answers within myself. And we as Christians know that we won't find the answers within ourselves. As Christians, we have a word for what happens at this table. It's called anamnesis. Anamnesis is what you do when you stand at this table or around the baptismal font and recall all the things God has done throughout time. You know that long liturgies we do, they're on purpose. Because I'm not just going to say, come and eat. Because that misses the whole point. <laughs> Anamnesis is the simple word that just means to mind again. Moving from God's movement in the past into a vivification of how God's moving right now, into a hope for tomorrow. And this kind of prayer will change your world. This is the sort of prayer life that will shape the kinds of communities like Kingstown that will shape culture. This is the kind of prayer life that the prophets used for two centuries when there were voices in the church that were saying that slavery was mandated by God and that this was the will of God this anamnetic memory that reached deep into the church's past and said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not our story. Today, when Christians use Mary and Joseph as a justification for sexual abuse and indecent liberties with minors, we reach into our anamnetic memory and we say, that's not our story because we know this story. What God has done shapes what we do, which shapes where we will go and who we will be. In the same period of time that um, Bertrand Russell was claiming that repetition and remembrance of prayer was contributing to the decline of the human mind, a theologian appeared on the scene that begged to differ. Karl Barth's argument for prayer was rooted in his understanding of Matthew 25, the parable of the bridesmaids. Or if you're Ed and you still read the, like, King James, the virgins. (laughs) It's midnight, and ten bridesmaids are awakened in their sleep by a shout telling them that the Lord is here, come and see. Five of them pay attention to that call, and they run to see the Lord. And five take notice of their oil. Do they have enough? Does there, is their oil fragrant enough? Is this going to please God? They pay all their attention to the oil and not to God. Instead of paying attention to God, they go shopping for more oil. Now, people give these bridesmaids a bad rap. But I believe they wanted to just appear perfect before the Lord. They wanted their oil to be just right. They didn't want to be those disorganized people always running out of kerosene. And maybe they thought it would be disrespectful if they didn't run off into their secret place to find new oil and and ended up not having enough for God's arrival. But you see, when they get back, With their perfectly filled lamps. They find that the party has begun without them. They missed the Lord. They didn't see with their pious practices and private devotion. And then the parable drives it home as the band begins to come forward. Keep alert, Jesus says. Pay attention be mindful of how God is moving, was moving, and will move. Ultimately, the hope is that we'll become alert to God and then attend to God the light of the world, the one from whom all lamps derive their glow anyway, the one by whose light we can see our own distractions and our own pious practices that are empty and are missed opportunities to see what's all around us, the one whose light is exactly the thing that wakes us up. And so today, um, over the next three to four minutes, I invite you to pray. And this is just, I just want you to stay seated um, until you're ready. And if we are a part of the church, that means we believe in what God has done in the past. We believe in what God is doing now, and we believe in what is coming up ahead. And this is why I pray that prayer book every single day. And we actually, in case you wanted, we have 15 of those copies back at the hospitality desk today. If you would like to begin praying to having a posture of remembering and seeing, I invite you to pick one up and you can just um, pay for it, $10. I mean, I think they're $11, but if you have a 10, that's fine. Um, But Pick up a prayer book and pray every day with me and invite you to do that uh, this winter into this spring. But also today, during this time that we're about to have, this is a time of committing before God how we are going to be involved in this church, what we've seen here and what we see ongoing. And so from me to you, I I thank you. Thank you, thank you for your contribution to this church up until now. It cannot happen without you. But I also invite you today during this song um, to be bold and not overly pious, not in your private prayer life, but as a part of something that is bigger than you, this anamnetic reality that begins here, I invite you to make a commitment today.